0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Uh, while you're turning there, I just want to say what I end up saying every August after returning from my time off in July and worshiping in other contexts. I just want to say how much I love this church. It is uh, good to be back with you. Obviously, as uh, most of you know, my role within this community will be changing in a couple months. I do believe God is calling me to step away from senior leadership, Uh, but one of the main reasons why um, I'm not simply leaving here to take a role as a senior pastor elsewhere is that I don't want to leave this church, and I don't want to leave Kentucky. Um, I love both very much. I know there are a lot of questions. I'm getting them. Elders are getting them. I know there are a lot of questions uh, you have about what that is going to look like. And uh, many of those questions are just not, um, they're unanswerable at this point because I fully admit what I'm doing is very unconventional. I I understand that. And so we need time to be thoughtful and thorough um, in thinking through uh, that unconventionality. But we are hosting a combined Sunday school class at the end of the month, August uh, 28th. August 28th. Uh, During that time, um, I'm going to get to share... Uh, with you what I've been um, really looking forward to sharing with you. Just the journey that God has had me on uh, that has led to this point, uh, why I feel, why I do feel called to step away and exactly what I will be doing, how I will be uh, serving the bluegrass. And that much I can share at this point. I'm excited to share and I would personally love for everyone to be there if at all possible. It will be recorded if you're not able to be there, but would love for you to join us. But for now, I do have two months of preaching left Uh, in this pulpit, at least as your uh, senior pastor. And here's what I want to do with these sermons. I don't want to spend two months dramatically uh, preaching my parting words to you and, you know, some self-aggrandizing sermon send-off. This pulpit belongs to Jesus. This pulpit belongs to his word, not to the preacher. And so I'm just going to do what I try to do every time I am blessed to stand behind this pulpit, which is to open God's word and proclaim it as faithfully as I can. So we're just going to pick right back up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We'll see how far I get. And then in October, the team can carry on with it as if nothing has changed, because truly nothing changes. Preachers change, but as you confess every Sunday, uh, the word of the Lord stands forever. So let me read for us our passage, and then we will look at it. You have heard that it was said that those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in full recognition that every single Sunday our souls are hungry and we need your word. But there are um, unique passages of Scripture that speak to us and our time, and I believe this is one of them. Lord, um, we live in a raging world, a world full of strife and hatred and toxic rhetoric and slander. And Lord, we want to confess that in many ways, your people, the people who are supposed to live under the banner of your love, are participating in what has become of our world. I pray that you would use this passage to rebuke the murderous intentions of our hearts, And that we would be a community recommitted to love as we have been loved. Help me to preach as I should. Use it as you will. Come Holy Spirit, blow upon this gathering and change us, we pray. For Jesus' sake and the good of those who have gathered. Amen. All right, let me remind us uh, where we are. Uh, Jesus is addressing the issue of God's law. And here's why. If it is true that this Sermon on the Mount is to be viewed as his manifesto of his kingdom, then what does that mean for the original manifesto, the law given to Moses, which served as the constitution of Israel? Jesus said prior that far from abolishing that law, he has come to fulfill it. And so what he is going to do is show us what he means by that. He's going to go through uh, familiar laws and say, You have heard it said this, but I say to you this. And that, but I say to you, is not a contradiction, but an exposition. He is going to be saying, This is actually what I meant when I wrote that law. And let me give you the basic outline uh, for the next uh, few weeks of uh, the rest of Matthew 5. So, we can kind of conceptualize where we're heading. In the first two instances, murder and adultery, Jesus is going to confront our tendency to follow the letter of the law while neglecting the heart of the law. In the next three instances, divorce, oaths, and retaliation, Jesus is going to confront our tendency to misinterpret the law to fit our own selfish agendas. And then in the final instance, love your neighbor hate your enemy. He's going to confront our tendency to just simply rewrite the law to say what we want it to say. But this week and next, we're going to look at this issue of following the letter of the law while neglecting the heart of the law. And I want to introduce uh, these next two sermons with a question for us that our culture is talking about quite a bit these days. Are you pro-life? Most in this room, I think, would say yes. There, of course, may be exceptions, but I think most people here would take a pro-life position on the issue of abortion. And the reason, if you are not pro-life and you want to understand where we're coming from, the reason we are pro-life is because we affirm the humanity of the unborn child. We believe that life in utero is still sacred and worthy of protection, even though that life has yet to be born. That is a helpful way to understand how Jesus approaches the law of God. Anger in our hearts is embryonic murder. Lust in our hearts is embryonic adultery. Just because the anger and the lust that grows inside of us has not been fully manifested into the actual acts of murder and adultery does not mean that what is inside us is meaningless and inconsequential. In many ways, principally speaking, they are one and the same. And that's the idea we're going to be exploring this morning and next. This week, examining our murderous hearts that may be, by the letter of the law, have not given birth to murder. But yet murder resides within. And Jesus is essentially going to do two things here. He's going to diagnose our murderous hearts, and then he's going to remedy our murderous hearts. Let's start with his diagnosis. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, there's a reason why Jesus begins with murder. Murder, the the unjust taking of another's life, is the most common agreed-upon dividing line, ethically speaking, between good and bad, meaning there are many um, moral uh, debates that cultures have wrestled through, historically speaking, but if there is one that is agreed upon, and there are exceptions, I think, of the Third Reich and so forth, but If there was a universal dividing line, culturally speaking, between a good person and a bad person, murder tends to be it. I'm a good person. It's not like I've ever killed someone, is the common line of thinking. And so it seems like we can excuse and justify nearly any form of immorality except murder. Here, we all agree that is wrong and there is no excuse, which is why Jesus starts with this one. And so he begins with a big one to demonstrate the true meaning of the law. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I recognize how severe that language sounds. But that is precisely his intention. Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point. What he does is he uses those things which were and are typically associated with murder and he applies them to our anger. So verse 22 sounds um, disturbingly extreme when we read it. But replace anger and insults with murder in this verse and it seems appropriate. Let me read it that way. But I say to you that everyone who murders his brother will be liable to judgment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Whoever murders his brother will be liable to the council. That's their judicial court. Yes, take take them to court. And whoever murders will be liable to hell. So now that verse doesn't seem as extreme, even the hell part, right? I I realize hell becomes a, uh, it's become taboo in our culture, our society, but most people even still have a category for murderers receiving the wrath and judgment of God. If there is a hell, that's where killers go. So the verse makes sense to us with murder, but becomes really extreme when applied to our anger, hatred, and insults. And it's precisely that tension that Jesus wants us to wrestle with this morning. Our anger, our hatred, our prejudice, Our slander, these are merely embryonic forms of murder and deserve what murder deserves. By the letter of the law, we are not guilty of murder. By the heart of the law, we all stand condemned as murderers. Now, this demands two important qualifications that I want to offer. First, Jesus is not condemning all forms of anger. Righteous anger over injustice is not just acceptable, it is loving. In fact, it is the application of love. I love my children with an immeasurable love. If anyone were to traumatically harm one of my sons, it would evoke an equally measure of um, anger in my heart over that act. And it's that righteous anger that reveals my love for them. The antithesis of love is not anger, but indifference. If I were unmoved and indifferent over my children's harm, it would reveal that I don't love them. This is why God is angry over injustice and unrighteousness, because God is love. An indifferent God does not get angry over sin, but a loving God is righteously anger when what he loves, his creation, his image bears, ultimately his glory He is angry when that is violated. So this is addressing unrighteous anger, not righteous anger. Second qualification is that just because Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point does not mean that he is equating anger to actual murder on a consequential level. Going back to my illustration, that there is no difference between the the sanctity of embryonic life in the womb and life outside the womb. There is, principally speaking, no difference to the sanctity of that. And that's true. And in the same way, embryonic hatred and the act of murder are principally the same. But consequently, there is a difference. Many times, as a pastor, I've walked with couples through a miscarriage. And it is painful, oh so painful. Many of you, some of you um, may be there now. And yes, we mourn and weep over a miscarriage as we should, again testifying to the humanity of the unborn child. But on lesser occasions, but it has happened, I have walked with couples through the loss of a child that was born to them. And there absolutely is a deeper pain Trauma, suffering that is undeniably greater and remains for a lifetime. So, in equating the two principally, we are not equating the two consequentially. Yes, the principle of hatred and murder are the same to Jesus, but that does not mean that the consequences of the two are the same. All right, with those two important qualifications aside, let's dwell here and let Jesus diagnose our murderous hearts. Chances are nobody here is a murderer by the letter of the law. But the law was not given as a technicality to follow, but as an all-encompassing way of ordering our lives. So let's measure ourselves according to the heart of the law. I think the most shocking statement here is that last phrase of verse 22. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire? What we, what we don't want to do with this statement is turn it into a technicality, the very tendency Jesus is confronting here. Do a letter of the law thing here uh, and say, oh my goodness, have I ever said the word fool? Does that mean I'm going to hell? No, 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 that's missing the entire point. The word in Greek is a tough one to translate. Fool is as good of an attempt as any because culturally speaking, um, that, that was as big of an insult as you could offer Um, in their time. But the meaning of the Greek is essentially worthless. Calling someone worthless is the point Jesus is making. So what is murder? Murder is the ultimate expression of treating someone as worthless. So worthless, you literally don't think they deserve life, and you want them to cease to to exist. And we say, cursed be that thought. But Jesus says to us this morning, tell me the difference. What's the difference? What's the difference in viewing someone as worthless? In speaking of them as worthless? In treating them as worthless? In dehumanizing and demonizing them as worthless? What's the difference between that and the ultimate act of taking their life as though they are worthless? When it comes to desires and intentions, there is no difference. Character assassination and actual assassination are born out of the same heart disposition. That's what Jesus is forcing us to deal with here. You fool was character assassination in their culture. And he is treating character assassination with the same severity as actual assassination. And so in light of the heart of the law, not merely the letter of the law... We are a gathering of murderers this morning. Festering in our hearts and flowing from our lips is embryonic murder. Now, of course, we are not alone. Since Genesis 3, murder in the heart has resided in every heart of every sinner. But thinking of this passage in our context, I do think we need to deal seriously with the age that is upon us. We find ourselves in a society where anger, hatred, strife, slander, all of these things have quite literally been monetized. Outside lust, we'll deal with lust next week. Outside lust, which continues to maintain its market preeminence, nothing is more lucrative. There is no more lucrative commodity in our society than hatred. All forms of media, conventional and social, now have no choice if they want to compete. They must offer the consumer what they want, not news, but hatred entertainment. I was talking to my sons about the Roman Colosseum recently, and they couldn't believe a society where people actually gathered in a stadium to watch murder for entertainment. But are we any different on a principal level? We are a society that tunes into cable news, that logs on to social media, that subscribes to podcasts to be entertained by embryonic murder. Reveling in toxic slander and malice and demonization just intoxicated on hatred. And so you combine sinners with a proclivity towards murderous hearts, with cultural liturgies reinforcing our murderous hearts, and the outcome is where we find ourselves. We hate each other. There is no other way to put it. We hate each other. We slander each other. We demonize and dehumanize each other, and it's all become so normative it doesn't even give us pause, Christian included. Well, guess who refused to enter the Roman Colosseum and renounce the entertainment of murder? This weird sect who followed Jesus of Nazareth in his Sermon on the Mount. This counter-cultural community who believed everyone was made in the image of God and worthy of love, not hatred. Dignity, not scorn. Blessing, not malice. In his past time, we renounce the spirit of our age and do Likewise. Christians are not supposed to be mean. Crazy thought, I know. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be loving. In fact, even when hated, we are supposed to respond with a countercultural love. Let's repent, church. Let's repent. Let us contest this murderous society of ours with the protest of love. And Jesus is going to show us how. Convicted, I am. Well, he doesn't just merely diagnose our murderous heart. He is going to offer a remedy to our murderous hearts. Let's go there next. Verse 23. So, now that word there shows us that he believes this is the solution. This is his application. This is what we are to do with our murderous hearts. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge, the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is so fascinating and just like Jesus to do. I couldn't get over it in my studies this week. Notice the intentional change of direction here. He has been talking about the murderous intentions in our hearts toward others. But when he gets to the remedy, he changes direction. We are now the object of another's anger. If you remember that your brother has something against you, not our anger towards others, but their anger toward us. But, and this is the key, he is no longer talking about unjust anger, but appropriate, righteous Anger. You realize that your brother truly has something against you. And then he talks about how an accuser can rightly take you to court and the judge can rightly put you in prison. So, according to Jesus, here it is. According to Jesus, the remedy to our sinful anger is the recognition that we are the source of others' righteous anger. This is brilliant. The cure is not, I've got to stop being so angry all the time. I've got to get control of my temper and tongue. Get this hatred thing under control. You know as well as I do, that is short-lived and it will not work. We don't need newfound effort. We need newfound perspective. And here is the perspective that Jesus is giving to every single one of us. I have given others countless reasons to be angry with me. I've got a lot of work to do. I need to apologize. I need to beg forgiveness. I need to do everything I can to be reconciled. He's promoting a life devoted to the arduous work of reconciliation. And it's difficult. Jesus says, he says, leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled. That altar is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a pilgrimage in that day. They would come from miles, multiple days journey to get to Jerusalem, to bring that gift to that altar And Jesus says, if you get there and remember how you have offended your brother, don't offer it. Leave it and go all the way back and apologize for what you have done. And then he promotes this urgency of reconciliation. Urgency as if someone is taking you to court and you know they have a case. Beg them for forgiveness and reconciliation like your incarceration depends upon it, is what he's saying. You see... I don't have time for unrighteous anger towards others because I'm too busy dealing with others' righteous anger toward me. My heart is too burdened for what I have done to others to have room in that same heart for murder toward others. My tongue is too busy with apologies and repentance to have time for slander. You get the point. So here's my question of application that I think fits the spirit of what he's saying here. What is the focus of your hatred? Is it directed towards others? Those who disagree with you? Those who are not like you? Uh, Those who inconvenience you? Those of a different, different political persuasion? Those you view as perhaps the source of society's ills? Those, perhaps someone in this very room, perhaps even someone in your family, in many cases our fiercest anger is in the home, is it not? Is the focus of your hatred directed toward others, or do you hate what you have done to others? Jesus is challenging the location of our outrage away from others and onto me. This is how we repent. Repent. That is the remedy to the murder in our hearts. We combat our hatred with reconciliation. We combat our slander with apologies. Especially considering, and herein is our ultimate motivation, especially considering the gospel we subscribe to. Our passage is dripping with gospel irony. If you are offering your gift at the altar and realize your brother has something against you, leave that altar until you are reconciled. Well, the one you are offering a gift to at that altar has something against you. Immeasurable ways we have sinned against the God of that altar. If approaching the altar, in our context, that would be the communion table. If coming to the table depends upon making things right with the God of this table, we may never approach it again. He says, come to terms quickly. With your accuser, lest he take you to court and hand you to the judge to be locked up in prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, the ultimate court date of judgment approaches with every passing breath. And the judge we will face is the teacher of this passage. If we have to pay back every penny, the debt our sins deserve, we will never be released from the prison of his judgment. Well, On the day of Christ's execution, an exchange was made. A murderer named Barabbas was released. And the sinless Jesus was crucified in his stead. My murderous brothers and sisters, this is our story. Murderers set free and a savior condemned. Even further. As Peter notes in the first evangelistic sermon preached in Acts, he looked out at that crowd and he said, you murdered the author of life. He says the same to us and we say, how so? We weren't there. Yes, but we are the reason he bleeds. The reason why embryonic murder is treated the same as actual murder is because it isn't embryonic after all. It gives birth to the death of Jesus. Our sins killed our Savior. But our Savior, blessed be His name, used His murder to forgive murderers like us. How? How can those who have that as our story ever be known as a hateful people. How can we who have known the reconciliation of heaven sow division on earth? It cannot be. Let us repent of our murderous hearts with the work of love. Love, not hatred. Love is who we are because love is all we have known. Let me pray. Lord, we repent as we come to this table of your sacrifice. We repent in our participation of the murderous ways of our society, and we want to be different. Lord, overwhelm us with your love that it might melt our hard hearts. Show us how we have offended, where we need to apologize, so that we don't have time for unrighteous anger. Lead us, Lord, in your love. Thank you that you have made a way for people like us to come to this table. Thank you, Lord, that we who put you to death, you use that death to welcome us in. We celebrate it now. Overwhelm us with that love that we may go and do likewise. Through Christ we pray. Amen.